Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? It's really what this whole gospel of Matthew is about. And here we're starting to land the plane in some ways is this last section, this last week in Matthew 21 and following. We've entered Holy Week. And that last week covers the rest of Matthew. Last week we looked at Matthew 21, 1 to 11, and we saw how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, the story of Jesus is the culmination of the story of Israel. And Matthew has sopped his gospel biscuit in the syrup of the Old Testament in a big way. And we've seen all the promises of God are yes in him. And we really have to, one of the reasons these verses are so challenging is because they're so sopped in Old Testament. And too many of us just don't know our Old Testaments. And we really got to understand the Old Testament to truly understand Jesus and all his glory. The New Testament really is just the tip of the iceberg. Have you seen one of these? I think we've got a picture of an iceberg. Have you seen one of these pictures? Check that out. Isn't that awesome? That's where the phrase comes, right? The tip of the iceberg. Well, the New Testament's just the tip. But there's so much foundational Old Testament underneath it we really need to get. The beauty of it is that even a child can come and read our passage this morning and be encouraged. But we're going to go deep this morning and see that there's actually so much more when we understand the Old Testament. Let me recap just a little bit of last week, because this section really all goes together, but I don't want to preach 90-minute sermons, so we're breaking it up. But last week, we saw that by going to the Mount of Olives, Matthew 21, 1 and 2, Jesus is deliberately evoking Zechariah 14, where the Lord prophesies that the nations will one day battle against Jerusalem, which is exactly where this Gospel of Matthew is going. That's what's going to happen in a generation. He rides on a donkey, not just because he was tired, but to fulfill Genesis 49 and Zechariah 9. Genesis 49 about being in the line of Judah and he will have an eternal scepter and the nations, not just Israel, but the nations will obey him and bring tribute to him. And then he quoted Zechariah 9 last last time about the coming king. And he quoted Isaiah 62 about a king, not just for Israel, but for all nations, a universal king. Then he's called the son of David. He's the son of David who deserves praise from 2 Samuel 7. He's the victorious king entering the temple as he quotes Psalm 118. He's the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Did y'all get all that last week? Well, we're going to go deep again this week. We can do it. This week in Matthew 21, Jesus is going to perform three symbolic actions as a prophet. That's really what he's doing right now. He's exercising his office as prophet. He's exercising his prophet as coming king and ultimately when he heads to the cross as priest. And so the symbolic actions, we saw the donkey. Now we're going to see the temple and the tree. The donkey, the temple, and the tree. So if you're not already there, turn to Matthew 21, verse 12. If you're using one of our Bibles there, it's page 775. 775. In many ways, we're learning history this morning, what Je- who Jesus was and what he came to do. And one of the things we have, to, we have to get that's probably lost upon many of us is the importance of the temple in Jerusalem. It was everything. It was the control center of the holy city. It was the central symbol of their national life and identity. It was the focal point of every aspect of Jewish national life. Its importance, really, at every level can hardly be overstated. The temple was the political, the economic, the religious heart of Old Covenant Israel. One historian 
says it's almost impossible to make too much of the temple in first century Jewish Palestine. Just think about it. It's where God's presence was found. It's where sacrifice was offered. It's where forgiveness was granted. Where politics were practiced. Which meant the leaders of this temple, they acquired great prestige. It was a big deal. The temple dominated the city of Jerusalem. The structure itself occupied 25% of the city. It's massive. Again, another historian says it wasn't so much a city with a temple in it. It was more like a temple with a small city around it. And so if you come in and you mess with the temple, you're messing with the nation's identity and pride. Jesus here then is going for the jugular. One author compares what Jesus is doing here in our day. It'd be like him riding into D.C. today, going up the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, burning a flag on the steps, and then flipping over the souvenir booths on the mall. Not going to go over well. So just like last week, though, last week we saw there were at least seven Old Testament passages that we really need to get if we're going to get the full significance of these verses. This week we've got eight. This won't be the easiest sermon to listen to. They're not all this hard or this deep. But I think when we understand the background, it'll be rich. Malachi 3, Isaiah 56, Jeremiah 7, Zechariah 14, 2 Samuel 5, 8, Psalm 8, Jeremiah 8, and Micah 7. Here's the beauty. If you've got a reference Bible, almost all those are right there in your references. You can trace them back. Main point, which is really the same as last week in many ways, is the whole section here of 21 and following. And that's just like God promised. The king came to judge unrepentant Jerusalem and save the nations. So let's consider two points. Judgment on the temple previewed and judgment on the temple symbolized. So first, judgment on the temple previewed. Look at Matthew 21 verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So Jesus Jesus enters the temple precinct from the east. The setting is the court of the Gentiles, which is that area outside the actual temple structure. And again, it was massive. The whole structure was 33 acres. It's a big place. And Jesus clears out those who were buying and selling animals to sacrifice. Clears out those who are exchanging money. Jesus is fired up. We learn in the Gospel of John, he has a whip with him. But it's important to realize this is not just some random angry outburst. This is a planned demonstration of defiance. Much like the donkey last week in the last passage. Not random, nothing's random in the Bible. Jesus knows his Old Testament and he knows exactly what he's doing. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. It's a symbolic self-disclosure, a symbolic gesture. And these money changers and these sellers themselves were actually not primarily what got Jesus hot. They were actually helpful and needed. I mean, just think about it. This was the time of Passover, and so the temple would be descended upon. By thousands and thousands of travelers. It was the most popular of all the Jewish festivals. Normally, Jerusalem had about 30,000 people in it. At the time of Passover, that grew to 180,000. 30,000 to 180,000. And the temple tax had to be in their own special temple coinage, a Tyrian coinage. You couldn't pay the tax in any other way. Other currency was rejected. 
And so you had to have money changers. People needed to change their money to fulfill their Jewish obligation. So they had no choice. And, of course, money changers and sellers, they needed to make a living. And people needed animals, right? They needed unblemished animals to sacrifice. It was a requirement from Scripture, right? And you think about it, especially if you're coming from a long way, it would be really hard to bring pigeons or goats or whatever it may be into Jerusalem. And one, it would be very hard. It would be very inconvenient. But also you had the risk of a blemish occurring. And so it was actually, again, helpful to the people to be able to buy unblemished animals and change money there. So to obtain... They would need the money. They would need the special coins in order to do so. And notice, by the way, Jesus kicked out the sellers and the buyers. Not just the sellers, sellers and the buyers. All who sold and bought in the temple, he clears it all out. Now, the primary issue Jesus has is not the fact that this is occurring, period. It's not really greed. It's the, it's the location that was the issue. In fact, we learned from history that Caiaphas had only recently allowed the, the money changers and the sellers and their stalls to be put in the temple precinct. Before, it was in the Kidron Valley, and it was a recent decision. So what Jesus is upset about is the location that this is happening. It's not against the practice itself. It needed to happen. It's the location. And for him to be upset with the location means he's upset with who? The leadership. The leadership. This area, do that out there, this area is a place of prayer and worship. So Jesus, the king, coming in to the holy city, and where does he go first? The temple. Zoom out a little bit. Zoom out a little bit and see what's going on. If we knew our Old Testament, this would mean a lot of things. Comes into Jerusalem as king and heads straight to the temple. Why? Well, again, it's another symbolic gesture that fulfills the Old Testament. Last week we saw Jesus fulfills Zechariah 9. He quotes it. Behold, your king is coming to you. But we also saw last week that he's fulfilling Zechariah 14 by standing on the Mount of Olives. It wasn't random. And he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. Let me read from Zechariah 14 too. Just to remind us, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered. And then here's how Zechariah 14 ends. And on that day. There shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. When this king comes... To establish his rule and to judge Jerusalem, there will no longer be traitors in the house of God. Jesus is the king Zechariah spoke of who comes to judge Jerusalem and remove his house of traitors. But that's not all. Again, trying to think in a Jewish way here. What would all this communicate to us if we know our Bibles? How does the Old Testament end? Let's flip there. It's, it's Malachi. Just flip right, behind, uh, right before Matthew. To the prophet Malachi. How does the Old Testament end? Look at Malachi chapter 3. Look at 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the day, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Here we are in one of the final chapters of the Old Testament, and the vision is that we should expect God to come. First, though, he's going to send a messenger to warn and prepare the way, and then where is he going to come? He's going to come right into the temple. Flip the page. Look at chapter 4 of Malachi, 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Message is similar in really all the minor prophets. God is going to come and judgment begins with the house of God. But before he comes... He's going to send a messenger. He's going to send Elijah the prophet. And when he comes, where is he headed first? The temple. And it's going to be a day of mourning, not a day of gladness at first. So again, what's the expectation here? Zooming out. The story of the Old Testament ends with a vision that God sends a messenger ahead of him to warn and prepare the way. And then God comes and he comes to his temple and it won't be a pleasant visit. God sends a messenger to warn and then come and brings judgment on the temple. What is the gospel of Matthew so far? God sent a messenger. His name's John. God came back to his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Back back to Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. Matthew eleven seven. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the winds? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Flip over to Matthew chapter 17. He says the same thing. Jesus wants us to understand who he is and what he's doing. He's fulfilling Malachi. Matthew 17, verse 10. And the disciples asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah, that first Elijah must come? And he answered him, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah's already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. 
so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John is the messenger. Jesus is God who's returning to judge his enemies and save his people and restore his rule. Matthew calls it the kingdom of God. And so this temple action here, what Jesus is doing, it's, it's not really so much a cleansing, but an acted out parable of judgment. It's a pre-enactment of the temple's destruction. In case you're new to the Gospel of Matthew, this is where this is all going. In fact, just look at Matthew chapter 24. This is where this is headed. So many ways Matthew 21, 22, and 23 are leading to chapter 24, where Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. 24 verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And Jesus at the end says this is going to happen within a generation. And we know that it did because if you know your history in A.D. 70... The Roman general Titus came in and destroyed the Jerusalem temple, just like Jesus promised. And there was not one stone left upon another. And so we should understand what Jesus is doing here is this disruption in the temple to be Jesus performing symbolic actions like the prophets often would. With this temple action, Jesus pushes pause on the sacrificial system, symbolically enacting the temple's destruction. It's a prophetic act. And then Jesus helps us. In the next verse, he quotes the Old Testament. Look at Matthew 21, 13. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, on surface level, that's what I love about the Bible. Surface level, it just sounds like, Jesus is against greed and for prayer, which he is. But there's actually a whole lot more going on here. Again, if you've got a nice little reference Bible, you know what mine says about that? He's actually combining two passages. My little reference Bible says, cited from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. And remember, the Old Testament, we should treat it like hyperlinks. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, we should go back and look, usually not only at the one verse, but at the whole section of what's going on there. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He wants us to go back, not just thinking of Isaiah 56, 7, but all of 56, and indeed all of that whole section, which is Isaiah 40 and following, and not just Jeremiah 7, but the whole chapter of Jeremiah, which is a sermon. What Jesus is doing here is actually very profound. Why Isaiah 56? Well, Isaiah 56 is about the restoration of God's people, the end of exile, the enthronement of God as king. In other words, it's about the gospel. That whole section is about the gospel. In fact, let me read from Isaiah 52 where we get the word gospel. Where'd the word gospel come from? Isaiah 40 and following. Every time we hear the word gospel in the New Testament, we should think of Isaiah 40 
and following. Let me read Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel, good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes to publishes salvation, who says to Zion, what is the content of the gospel? Your God reigns. He's coming back as king. Of course, this is Isaiah 52. We know the means by which he will do that. It's in the very next chapter, Isaiah 53, by means of suffering. The gospel is the kingdom coming. That's why in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Matthew 4, 23, he went about teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So he quotes Isaiah 56 with the whole section in mind. We actually looked at Isaiah 56 a few weeks ago, thinking of eunuchs, but let's look again. Isaiah 56, verses 1 to 8. Why is Jesus including this here? Isaiah 56, 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come. And my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and who, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And that, let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners, this is incredible, the Gentiles, the pagans, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him. That's a, a technical term about priestly work. Foreigners will be priests in the new covenant to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for, quote, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 56 to communicate that he is God returning to his people to judge his enemies, restore his people, and include the foreigners. That's us, by the way. Include the Gentiles. And they'll be priests. And he'll establish his kingdom. That sounds like the gospel of Matthew, doesn't it? So he quotes Isaiah 56. My house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. But then he adds a section from Jeremiah 7. Why does he do that? Why Jeremiah 7? I want to read the whole sermon. It's a bit long, but it's a quote I mean, from a sermon by Jeremiah where Jeremiah is denouncing the temple. Israel was trusting in the temple. Why not actually living for God? And so let me read from Jeremiah. Jesus sees himself as Jeremiah. In fact, they mistook him for Jeremiah. Why? Because part of his message was gloomy, just like Jeremiah. So what's Jeremiah preaching here? Listen to Jeremiah 7.1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. That's the temple. 
He's right outside the temple. And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold... I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called to you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. He'll destroy it again. Verse 15, And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for this people. It's incredible. Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field, and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. I've persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished, it is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. 
I think Jesus wants to have this whole sermon in mind as he quotes from both Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. He's rebuking Israel because they thought they could live however they wanted, sinful lives out of the temple, and then come in and find comfort in the temple. And the Lord, through Jeremiah, says you need to amend your ways. It's the same message of Jesus. Who does he come and who's the antagonist in the Gospels? It's the temple leadership that are trusting in the temple, meanwhile not living for God. They say certain words, but their hearts were far from him. Today I think about Sunday-only Christians. Got a lot of those in Abilene, Texas. If you're here, we're glad you're here. But don't make the mistake of thinking you're just fine because you come here for one hour a week. The church of the Lord, the church of the Lord, the church of the Lord. Don't trust in those deceptive words, Jeremiah would say and Jesus would say. He would call that false religion. And Jesus isn't really interested in just one hour of your week. He's interested in your whole life. And Francis Schaeffer said, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. He's interested in every moment of every day. He wants it all. And so I would just ask, are you living for him? Living for him, not attending an hour. This is a very important hour. Glad you're here. But are you living for him with all of your life? Every moment of every day. Is your whole life about him ultimately? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for his glory. Well, you notice this is where the phrase den of robbers came from, right? Jeremiah chapter 7. The word actually had a little bit of a political angle. The idea is a place. Den of robbers is a place to which violent insurrectionists would return after they committed evil. It's this violent robber. It's a den of violent robbers, a bandit's cave, a a brigand's lair, a refuge of insurrectionists, a cave of terrorists, a refuge for criminals. That's what the temple had become, a stronghold for nationalist rebels. And so Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7 to show that the temple is doomed. Why? Because of Israel's sin. Just like before at Shiloh when God used the Philistines to destroy the tabernacle. That's why he said it's going to happen again just like at Shiloh. Now God would destroy it again, this time through the Romans. Shiloh will happen again. Jesus, in effect, says, I'm here turning over tables, but the Romans will tear down the walls. Because you're trusting in a building and you're not living for the Lord. And so by combining the positive vision, Isaiah 56, and the negative vision of Jeremiah 7, Jesus is telling us the end of the temple is not the end of the story. The kingdom is here and foreigners would be included in the people of God. All nations, a house of prayer for all nations, foreigners would even become priests. And that's where this gospel's headed, Matthew. The old covenant would end. Jesus would establish the new covenant in his blood, and the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Abilene to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 14 of Matthew 21. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, 
they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. It's just incredible. Jesus comes in, turns over tables, heals the blind, heals the lame. Children are praising their king, and the Jewish leadership is mad about it. Jesus is doing wonderful things. He's doing amazing things, and they don't like it. Ultimately, we know if we've been reading Matthew because it's hidden from them, right? Look back at Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus is the son of David, and here we have an allusion to David, actually, but it's a contrast. Here we, we see behavior back in the Old Testament of David, and now we see that Jesus is a better David. Let me just read 2 Samuel 5 for you. The kings and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the temple. Here we have a contrast. The first David dismisses the little ones, but the better David welcomes them and he heals them. This kingdom will consist of caring for the needy and caring for the broken, as well as the praise of children. Here we have the kingdom dawning, and what do we first see? Children's choir. The king's army consists of the little ones, the blind, the lame, and the children. And of course, if you've been here with us, we saw that in chapter 18, where Jesus uses children as an example. Puts a child, what's the greatest in the kingdom? He puts a child and says, whoever humbles himself like this child's the greatest. Jesus cares deeply for children. And he has a very harsh warning. If you cause one of these to stumble, it'd be better to be drowned with a big stone than to cause a child to stumble. And then in chapter 19, he repeats himself just a chapter later and says, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom. Children, look at me real quick. I'm so glad that you're in here. And one of the reasons I'm so glad that you're in here is because Jesus Christ is so glad that you're in here. And parents, take notice. Remember last week? Look at chapter 21, verse 9. The crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The parents are praising Jesus on the way in. And, and look back down at chapter 21. Verse 15, the children crying out in the temple, and what are they crying out? Hosanna to the son of David. They're mimicking their parents, and so I would just encourage you, you do this so well, continue to sing loud, continue to take notes, continue to have your nose in that book because your kids are watching and ultimately will follow you. Just like they followed their parents here. And Jesus quotes the Bible again. Have you never read... 
Don't you know the Bible? And this time he quotes Psalm 8, right here in verse 16. Do you know who the babies are praising in Psalm 8? Yahweh. And who does Jesus say fulfills Psalm 8? He does. Jesus is God. The infants in Psalm 8 praising Yahweh is fulfilled in the infants praising the Son. And then he leaves. No room in the city. Remember, it's very crowded. And so they have to go out of town about an hour to Bethany. Judgment on the temple previewed. And then more briefly, judgment on the temple pre-enacted. The judgment on the temple symbolized. Look at verse 18 of Matthew 21. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Jesus is truly man, so he's hungry. He sees a tree and he heads over, has no figs on it again. This is prophetic, symbolic action. This isn't Jesus just being testy, being hungry. No, he knows what he's doing. He knows there's no fruit on the fig. Mark, in this same account, Mark 11, tells us it wasn't the season for figs. Jesus is using the tree as an object lesson for the temple, for Israel. What Jesus is doing to the temple is the same thing he's doing to the fig tree. The cursing speaks to the temple's future. He's found no fruit, and so it's doomed. Again, he's drawing on that very same section of Jeremiah. I read to you all of Jeremiah 7. Let me just read a couple verses from Jeremiah 8, verse 11. They've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed from them. Or listen to Micah chapter 7, another indictment. Woe is me, for I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godlies perish from the earth. There's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of a soul. Thus they weave it together. It's this picture of God coming to inspect his people and finding no fruits. Same with Hosea chapter 2, which is the final warning before Assyria comes and wipes out Israel. He says, I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts, and I will lay waste her figs, lay waste her vines and her fig trees. He's saying unrepentant Israel will be laid waste again. Because you know what Jesus could have done? He could have miraculously caused the tree to blossom. Rather, he pronounces a curse which causes it to die. And he says, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the tree withers at once. It's dead. And Judaism, apart from Christ, is soon to wither as well. 
because of its fruitlessness. That's what Jesus is after. Not temple attendance, not church attendance. Not just saying certain things, but fruits. It's really what he's been doing from the very beginning in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Let's take a little journey. Look at Matthew chapter 3. What has Jesus been after? Fruit. In other words, repentance. Turning from sin and turning to Christ. Started with John the Baptist. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. What's the message been? When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Verse 10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Flip over to Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What is Jesus after? He's after spiritually fruitful lives. Chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Flip over a couple more pages to Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. What is Jesus after? Matthew 12, 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Flip over a page to Matthew chapter 13, verse 8. The parable of the soils, there was only one good soil. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirty. The good soil produces good fruit. And then flip back to Matthew 21. We'll be here in a couple weeks. The parable of the tenant, Matthew 21, verse 33. Jesus tells us a few parables as he heads still, still in the temple. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. Put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased its tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get this fruit. Skip down with me down to verse 41. They said to him, he will put, there was no fruit. They killed the servants. They killed the son. Verse 41, they said to him, he will put those, what will happen? He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So the temple 
is like this fig. There's no fruit on it. So Jesus curses it. The temple is like this fig, soon to perish and be barren forever. Its failure is terminal. Look at Matthew 23, verse 29. This is where it's headed. 24 is the foretelling of the destruction of the temple. This is right before that. Chapter 23, verse 29. Speaking to the leadership, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets. You decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that your sons of those who murdered the prophets fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood, right, the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, this generation of unrepentant Israel was the terminal generation. We know that. Why? Because they crucified the king. Their lack of repentance has reached a point of no return and judgment is around the corner. Look at verse 20 of Matthew 21. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what's been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So here as he concludes this section, Jesus encourages his disciples to have confident faith in God's power and to ask and expect and notice how here he contrasts faith and doubt. I know sometimes, especially professors, one of the things they want to do is actually baptize doubt. Jesus doesn't. He says, truly, if you have faith and do not doubt. What is faith? It's an increasing lack of doubt, actually. That's how he defines it right here. Faith is confidence in God. If you have confidence, you'll be able to do this and even... Throw this mountain. Of course, the temple was often referred to as a mountain in Scripture. Isaiah 2, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. Or John 4, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. In the future, you won't worship on this mountain, this temple. And notice Jesus says, this mountain. He's not saying any mountain. He says, this mountain. Well, what mountain? The temple mount, where they are. He has a specific mountain in mind, which will be metaphorically cast into the sea. In 40 years. This is an amazing prophecy that Jesus enacts and then he says and then happens about a generation later in AD 70. These verbs here for prayer, they're all in the plural. Whatever y'all ask in prayer, whatever y'all ask, y'all will receive. So the focus is on corporate prayer. And so again, let me encourage you to come tonight, five o'clock, and let's come together and ask God to act to work good amongst us. So this is a tough passage. 
I think God first wants us to understand who Jesus is and what he's about and where he's headed. In many ways, this is history. That's why it's a little bit hard to get nailed down. But I think a pressing question for us in light of these verses is, is your life bearing fruit? See this from the beginning of the gospel to the end of the gospel? It's what Jesus was after. It's what John the Baptist was after. It's what Jeremiah was after. This is what this last generation of Israel lacked. They were barren. And so the question I think we can come away and ask, are we barren? Or is there fruit in our lives? Is it time to examine ourselves? And it's hard to do, right? Because we all stumble in many ways, James chapter 3. Too often we do look inward and we find ourselves lacking. In many ways, that's right. Someone who looks at themselves and thinks, yeah, I think I'm pretty much nailing it, would be categorized as a Pharisee. The opponents of Jesus. Jesus didn't come for those who think they're healthy. He came for those who know they're sick. Yet, there should be fruit in our life. Now, I often say, you don't look last week. Don't look last month. Don't even look last year. But can you look at a two or three year? Can you look at yourself two or three years ago and, okay, yeah, I see fruit. I wish I saw more. But I do see some fruit. I am slowly, surely, but slowly being conformed to the image of Jesus. Is your life bearing fruit? Is your life changing? Can you look two or three years back and say, okay, I'm a more patient person. I love the Bible more. I'm a committed church member. I'm quicker to repent of my sin than I used to be. We don't want to be like old covenant Israel, unrepentant and unfruitful. If we're genuinely born again, our lives will change. We will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Our lives will be in process ever so slowly into the image of Jesus. If you're not sure, you're like, you know what, I don't see much change. I don't know. We'd love to talk. We'd love to talk more about what it means to be a Christian and what the Christian life should look like. Just like God promised, the king came to judge unrepentant Jerusalem and save the nations.